This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Binance, the global blockchain company behind the world's largest exchange. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tori Newmeyer, business reporter here at the Washington Post. Thank you for joining us for two conversations about the future of crypto, blockchain, and security. My first guest today is Dr. Kathy Mulligan, co-director of the Imperial College Center for Cryptocurrency Research at Imperial College London. She's also done work for the United Nations and World, the World Economic Forum uh, on how blockchain can pave the way to a more equitable future. Dr. Kathy Mulligan, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry, Dr. Mulligan, I, I couldn't hear you. Sorry. Yeah, I said uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me now? I can. Thank you very much. Uh, and a reminder to our audience, we want you to join our conversation. So tweet your questions and comments to the handle at post live. Uh, Dr. Mulligan, I wanted to start just by kind of level setting here. Uh, you've written about the transformative potential of blockchain uh, to solve some intractable problems um, and to promote broadly shared prosperity all over the world. You've also written that this technology is yet to prove itself, and it may be a decade, decade or two before it does. Uh, and there are big questions you, you've said that remain before we get there. I'm just curious, could you place yourself on a spectrum between uh, blockchain skeptic and blockchain advocate? Yeah, so I, I think I'm slap bang in the middle. I'm for very pragmatic application of an extraordinarily exciting new technology. Uh, so, you know, I, I've spent many years in uh, digital technologies and I've seen a lot of hype and a lot of failed promises from, from different types of technologies. So what I think we're seeing with blockchain is actually we're living through one of the world's greatest thought experiments. You know, what is money? That is what cryptocurrency and blockchain are really asking us. Uh, and I think that's a, such a fantastically interesting question. Um, but we shouldn't jump to the first answer and we should think about those things really, really carefully before we, you know, drive through uh, to the end of the uh, end of the game, if you will. So I'm slap bang in the oh. middle. I, I really do believe in the potential, but we've well, got to be helpful. careful. Thank you. Um, so with with stakes that that heady, it's probably understandable that we've seen a lot of hype around this. And you've you've warned about this. You wrote four years ago in a co-paper at a author at a paper you co-authored for the World Economic Forum. Um, it has started to seem that the most intractable of the world's problems have merely been waiting for blockchain to arrive. This is not only misleading and untrue, but also becomes a barrier to decision makers in taking a balanced perspective on the technology. And you said that the hype is, quote, damaging uh, its long-term prospects. I'm wondering if you could expand on that and, and tell us whether you think that is more or less true today. Absolutely. One of the worst things about being an academic is people can quote your own work back at you. Um, I think actually we're, we're pretty much at uh, the same point. I think we're starting to see some really interesting ideas and concepts come to the fore. I think we're, we've been watching this sort of fermenting and bubbling innovation in the cryptocurrency space, the creation of Web 3.0, move towards NFTs and then Metaverse. And I think there's a lot of sort of 
what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? But at the same time, we're also starting to see some really interesting moves towards some very, very solid, what I think are really solid um, cryptocurrency and blockchain um, pieces of work. So, you know, one of the things that I, I find quite uh, irritating or frustrating is, you know, we, we start to see the cryptocurrency community are basically, you know, trying to recreate the traditional financial system on top of the cryptocurrency base. Uh, and for me, that's a little bit of a misdirection because the whole point of cryptocurrency was we were going to create a new type of financial system. Why are we recreating the one that we, we didn't like before in this new, new space? But there are ways, for example, that we could use cryptocurrency and blockchain to deliver social good. So, for example, are there new ways to create financing mechanisms for really critical infrastructure that could fundamentally restructure the organization of delivering of financing for water, for energy, for food? You know, I, I truly believe there's a great opportunity in those kind of spaces. And we're starting to see slow moves in that space, in that direction. So you've also written that Bitcoin has done um, little so far to overcome inequality, digital or otherwise. Um, it may help our, our viewers here. If maybe we provide some definitions between the difference, the differences between crypto and, and blockchain. But I'm, I'm also curious if you draw a distinction between the promise of crypto and the, and the promise of blockchain. Yeah, so for me, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is a subset of what I would call a distributed ledger technology. Um, so blockchain really and, and cryptocurrencies uh, are similar, but not necessarily the same thing. So you can use blockchain or distributed ledger technologies to do sort of very traditional transaction management. And we can see some great examples of that. You know, IBM does a lot of work in that space. Uh, R3, there's a lot of different organizations out there who are using uh, distributed ledger technologies, but in a very traditional sort of IT sense. Then we have cryptocurrency, which is a slightly think, different thing altogether. And what's unique about cryptocurrencies really is the fact that it brings together this idea of money together with the blockchain. Um, and it actually you know, provides a, a, a sort of new type of currency, if you will, uh, as well as the actual transaction management. So from where you sit as a uh as an optimistic skeptic or a um, qualified uh, advocate, what what do you think the future looks like in in a decade or two, uh, in which blockchain tech has been widely adopted? Is are we going to notice this? Are our lives going to be different, either in the United States or you know maybe in the developing world? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question and. Uh, I think there's two different ways to look at it. I think what's going to happen in some instances is it's going to be a lot like a database technology. Uh, most uh, viewers will probably understand what a database actually is, but they probably don't really need to worry about how it's implemented, where it's implemented in all of the systems they're working with on a day-to-day -day basis. So you probably interact with probably between 15 and 20 databases in, in a day. You don't know what that's doing. You just trust that it's actually working as it should be. Um, so I think some of the cryptocurrencies and some of the blockchain activities will end up in that space um, that they will sort of sink into the background and you'll trust that it's it's running as it should. Other things are going to be much more transformative and much more disruptive. So, for example, uh, one of the things we're working on in, in the, the lab I run in Lisbon at the moment is that we're looking at how you can use 
uh, cryptocurrencies as financing mechanisms for the delivery of water infrastructure or the delivery of energy infrastructure um, and doing that in a crowdsourced manner and a bottom-up manner rather than needing to rely on you know massive large-scale debt from uh, I don't know the World Bank or other um, geopolitical actors in, in the space so that could be foundationally that could be really transformational uh, in the way that uh, energy and uh, water is actually built and delivered as an infrastructure. So that I think people would notice on a day-to-day -day basis. And do you think we, we are going to have to become uh, masters of our own data management here? Is everyone going to have to become a kind of crypto expert in, in some guise where we understand how this stuff uh, works much more than we do now? So one of the things that I thought, I had a really interesting experience last year when someone asked me to join a DAO. And prior to, to joining this particular DAO, I had only ever mined cryptocurrency, um, you know, in the way that you would. When there was the first time in my life, I actually needed to buy some Ethereum. I know that sounds ridiculous. I've been working in this space since 2009, but I'd never needed to buy cryptocurrency. I'd always just mined it. Uh, and when I went in to try and buy it, I found myself absolutely at a loss of how to actually um, you know conduct business really in this cryptocurrency space and it took me quite some time to understand how to get through it so i think that you know if we're thinking about one of the biggest problems with cryptocurrency is actually two things usability so how easy it is it to understand and if we can't understand how to use it on a day-to-day -day basis the same way as we currently do with our banking or any of the other apps that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis i think that's a big barrier for the uptake and adoption of cryptocurrency and also, you know, I sort of think about, uh, would I ask my mum to bank in cryptocurrency? Uh, no, I wouldn't in today's world because I think it's it's a little bit too complex. So I think we've got some way to go to streamline and make cryptocurrency accessible and usable in a really, um, you know, very structured manner that people understand and trust. Um, so when I talk to a lot of people about, you know, buying cryptocurrency or trading in cryptocurrency, they are panicking a little bit about the fact that they don't necessarily fully understand what is happening with their money. Well, let's talk about a use case uh, that is unfortunately front and center right now, but it's a place where uh, crypto users have, I think, proven in a very vivid fashion how this thing, how this technology can be deployed uh, at a scale that's immediate and meaningful. And that's, of course, in Ukraine, where users from around the world have been airdropping contributions to the effort there to help uh, the government and also some allied organizations provide relief and material to the war effort as they're resisting this Russian invasion. I'm curious, as you talk to policymakers, has that struck a chord um, with, with them, people who aren't necessarily as, uh, as clued in uh, to this debate about the potential for the, for the tech? Yeah, and I think it's a really, you know, it's it's a, 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 a very soul-destroying use case, but it's a fantastic example of what cryptocurrency can actually achieve. Um, so, you know, we've seen in the Ukraine that over $55 million uh, in cryptocurrency has pretty much been raised very, very quickly uh, and put to use by the Ukrainian uh, government for, you know, delivering um, services and things like that to its, its citizens. So I think it shows the massive potential. Uh, and when I uh, talk to you know policymakers in this space about this kind of thing, they're struck by two things. One is that you know not every, not all the crypto millionaires are really just about driving a Lamborghini and you know 
making ridiculous statements on Twitter. They actually do genuinely have a, you know, a, uh, how would you say, like a civic feeling and a civic duty that they want to contribute to the world and they see cryptocurrency as a way to do that. The other thing is that it shows the power of grassroots movements. Um, and I think that uh, not just cryptocurrency, but uh, digital technologies in general, we now have the you know, computational capacity is no longer just limited to governments and limited to corporations. It's now in the hands of the average everyday person. That gives us truly powerful ways to reorganize and organize in a different way for society. So we can actually really challenge some of the political economic structures in the world. Um, but we've seen some fantastic uh, you know, work done uh, by the cryptocurrency community and indeed the digital community uh, in support of Ukraine. Let's talk about a challenge to adoption. Uh, it seems like it's becoming a, a bigger deal uh, as days go go by here, which is hacks and and uh, crypto-based crime. We know it it crypto-based crime roughly doubled last year to to fourteen billion dollars, according to Chainalysis. We've seen a number of big hacks of De DeFi platforms, including the biggest one in history to date last week. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about? what you think this does to, how, how urgent is this? What, how much damage is this doing to undermine uh, confidence in, in the technology and, and what should we be doing about it? Yeah, I think it's, it's about, you know, providing a proper service as much as it is about creating confidence. Uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, my lab has uh, looked a little bit at the uh, types of attacks that are happening in uh, the cryptocurrency space at the moment and trying to do an analysis to understand the, the different style of attacks. But there is one thing that I think it really brings home, and that is the power that software engineers currently are gaining within society. Um, and, you know, traditionally, again, you know, when you have coded something, it probably has crashed someone's computer. At most, it's brought down, you know, someone's network or something like that. Uh, but what we're seeing in today's world with smart contracts, you can actually have genuinely uh, devastating effects with code if it's poorly coded, incompetently coded uh, and those kind of things. So, for example, in one of the, the most famous DAO hacks, uh, the, the way that that hack occurred was the fact that two lines of code were the wrong way around. And if they had been switched around the other way, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been able to have been hacked that way. So I think the important thing to understand is that we need to also think about how we are training software engineers and potentially think about are there types of software engineers that should be uh, certified as able to build these type of smart contracts because they've gone through a certain type of security training. Um, the other angle on that is I think there could be a really good set of services built by someone there, um, uh, someone somewhere basically, where you would run tests of the smart contracts. Because currently, I think they're sort of being tested on the test net. They're sort of tested to see if things work, but they're not being tested for the security. Uh, so I think those are some of the things that the community should be actively working on and developing together to ensure um, safety and security for their customers, basically. Is that a job for the industry to do sort of in a self-policing capacity? Or do you think um, if there are certifications that that should be something done by policymakers? Um, I think it could be done by both. So, for example, you know, if, if a, a smart contract, contract is working in a very heavily regulated industry like financial services, then potentially something like the FCA in the UK could run those tests and ensure that those 
smart contracts are well coded. But the other way to do that, of course, is to create industry standards and potentially industry test beds. Uh, so we've seen very good examples of that previously in the telecommunications industry, where you know even competitors will get together, they will jointly run uh, what they call you know test tests. Uh, to ensure the security of the code and the safety of that particular service for the overall um, customers of the telecommunications industry. So I think it should be a bit of both. Uh, and I also believe actually, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I am an academic, that we need changes in the way we train software engineers uh, in, in the world of today where uh, software is so embedded into our day-to-day -day lives that we actually, you know, can cause uh, not just damage to financial services, but potentially damage to human life as well with some of the systems that we code today. I want to ask you about decarbonizing Bitcoin because I know this is something you've you've paid attention to. Uh, I think the estimates now are that the, the network is consuming as many terawatt hours as Norway, uh, and that's that's apart from the e-waste problem uh, where the network, uh, the miners are, are chewing through uh, actual com computing machinery at a pretty alarming and, and wasteful clip. Uh, mm -hmm. there's, a new, there's a new effort in the United States by environmental groups to force a switch uh, in the Bitcoin code from proof of work to uh, something else, probably proof of stake, but not clear. Um, Bitcoin defenders say the essence of the Bitcoin network is its security, and you'd be compromising that by, by moving to a different kind of um, protocol for securing the network. Um, where, where are you on, on that? Do you think, is security paramount or is this a trade-off that's, that's worth making or is that, is that a false choice? Um, I, I think it's a little bit of a false choice, actually. So what I, what I think is, you know, and I completely understand uh, the impetus to say that we should reduce uh, energy consumption. Uh, to be honest, I think we should be reducing energy consumption on every single technical system we have worldwide. That should be a, a massive priority for everybody. Um, but when it comes, uh, you know, firstly to switch Bitcoin from proof of uh, proof of work to proof of stake, that would be almost, uh, I would say it would be almost impossible. Um, there's, a, you know, exactly like um, other people have stated, there are security issues. There's a reason why proof of stake, um, you know, works the way it does. You could actually gain that system much more easily if you could get control of sort of a certain number of the nodes uh, doing the mining. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, one thing that I think is desperately needed is in-depth research into the next generation of cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, like I said, I really believe this is a thought experiment. Bitcoin for me is a fantastic thought experiment, but it's the first of its kind. Uh, and I think what we need is, you know, to research into how we could create different types of Byzantine fault tolerant um, systems, different types of protocols that can deliver potentially the security of proof of work without needing to make the compromises that proof of stake does. Well, Dr. Mulligan, we are just about out of time, but uh, I want to thank you for, for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I will be back in just a few minutes with our next guest, uh, so I want to encourage you to stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, my name is Michael Groeniger. I'm the CEO and founder of Genalysis. Here with me today, I have the Binance CEO, Chang Pong Zhao, or better known as CC. 
TC, it's a pleasure to talk to you today and discuss why regulation is such an integral part of the evolving cryptocurrency framework. As one of the leading blockchain ecosystems and cryptocurrency exchanges, Binance is at the very forefront of the conversations with regulators and policymakers to develop compliance infrastructure by growing consumer access to cryptocurrency in a safe way. But how are you thinking about closing the knowledge gap, both on the consumer level and on the policymaker level, to understand what crypto is all about? Uh, yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I think um, education is really, really important today. Um, I think today most people don't understand crypto to a deep level, both on the consumer side and uh, on the regulator side. And to be honest, even many of the industry players, it's not like we understand everything in crypto. Um, but the education part is really important. People, uh, people generally fear what they don't, what they don't know well. And today, uh, re most regulators do not have experience running a large-scale crypto uh, exchange uh, like we do. And we will very much like, love to share that knowledge with regulators, whoever wants to listen. So we are engaged in conversations with many different policymakers, regulators all around the world. On the consumer side, we have a, a multiple pro programs as well. We have Binance Academy, which uh, teaches basic concepts online. The Binance Academy content is actually used by the Portuguese government on the government uh, website for education, for crypto education. Um, and we also uh, have Binance Masterclass, which is a uh, in-person and also online class now during COVID. And um, we'll run many other, we also have a, a starting a Binance scholarship program to work with uh, universities to uh, enhance further education on finance and blockchain. So I think education is extremely, extremely important. So you said publicly that it's your responsibility to work with regulators and policymakers, not just to educate, but also to shape the new standards for, for cryptocurrency assets. What role do you think regulation plays in helping consumers trust cryptocurrency? And how do we strike this right balance between innovation and, and regulation? Yeah, I think what you said there is exactly uh, important, is the right balance. Um, there's no uh, perfectly good regulation or perfectly bad regulation. Um, it's just striving the balance between in, uh, promoting innovation and protecting consumers. Um, and different parts of the world care about different things. And um, um, so we need to work with uh, regulators to find the right balance in different parts of the world. For example, in the U.S., um, uh, KYC AML is extremely important and for the rest of the world, and they are extremely worried about terrorists and bad players. In uh, China, for example, money, anti money laundering is moving money out of China. That's money laundering. So they have different focuses in different parts of the world, and we want to work with regulators all around the world. So, so recent research indicates that, and that's that's kind of surprising, but recent research indicates that that consumers would have a higher trust in buying cryptocurrencies from their traditional financial institutions as opposed to cryptocurrency exchanges. So, uh, how do you how do you at Binance work with, with that that fact, and how do you build increased trust with with the with consumers around compliance? And what are you doing around security? Because I think that's one of the things we've seen from financial institutions. You used to think about them as having a big vault and everything is safe. And what have your initiatives been around security for the cryptocurrency ecosystem there? Sure. I think, um, yeah, it's uh, given the crypto adoption today, it's probably around 3 to 5% globally. So out of 100 people, only 3 to 5 people have some kind of cryptocurrency. And most people are still used to using a bank system. Uh, and even when they use crypto exchanges, they are more used to using the centralized exchange, which 
they access using your email and password, and they can call customer support when there's an issue. So people are still more used to the centralized service offerings uh, today. And um, so uh, we uh, and people do trust uh, banks to a large to, to a very large extent, and that's what they you know give, put all of their savings in most of, for most people. So we do work very closely with, to integrate with traditional um, service providers, financial service providers like banks, payment service providers, etc. So uh, we view that Binance has to be the bridge between the crypto world and the traditional financial world. So um, that's kind of where where we position ourselves. So I think I'd like to ask you one more question around um, another thing that's been very dear to me as well, and that's how do we strike the right balance and how do you think from, from Binance point of view to strike the right balance between privacy and the fact that the blockchain is probably the, the most transparent value transfer network we've ever seen? Yeah, so I think that's a pretty tricky one to be honest uh, today. So, um, but fundamentally it's, it's, it's quite, this principles are very simple, but the practice of it is a little bit hard. Principally, uh, everyone should have their right to privacy. They should they should be able to choose what information uh, are required to disclose um, when they want to disclose it. Um, there are certain cases where you know uh, certain information like KYC, AML, uh, these are required by regulators by law, um, and that. Uh, that uh, those information are should be accessible by a small number of law enforcement um, and regulators. So, but uh, in practice, there's a lot of details. Um, and um, how do we ensure that privacy is kept while we uh, ensure maximum enforceability of laws and protecting uh, um, consumers against illicit activities? There's a lot of nuance. So, I think as an industry, we're still trying, we're still figuring it out as we go along. And we work very closely with regulators to, when regulators and law enforcement agencies come to us with a request and that request is properly vetted and we do share that information and uh, but we uh, in other cases uh, but aside from those cases we keep that information extremely private and the blockchain makes it quite tricky for consumers as well because if uh, if a person knows your one address they can track like you know to, to a very I mean you guys do a very good job tracking where the funds go etc so um, there's, a, there's a fine balance but I think as an industry we're still figuring that out Thank you so much, Cece. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you now. And uh, now back to the Washington Post. Thank you. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I am Tori Newmeyer. My next guest is Congressman Darren Soto. He's a Democrat from Florida and co-chair of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. Uh, a reminder to our audience, we want you to join our conversation. So. Um, Please tweet your questions and comments to the handle uh, at Post Live. Congressman Soto, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tori. Appreciate the opportunity. And I understand you're at votes, so thank you for making time. I understand this isn't uh, exactly convenient, but, but we appreciate it. You bet. Um, you first introduced legislation on this topic four years ago. And I think something that everybody on all sides of this agree on, whether you're very anti-crypto or you know a total uh, evangelist for this, is that we need clearer legal and regulatory lines governing this space. So what is taking so long? Well, in Washington, it takes a lot of input from a lot of folks. Uh, I introduced two bills, the Digital Taxonomy Act and the Token Taxonomy Act with Warren Davidson back in 2018 and it took a while because 
we need agency feedback. We need it, feedback from the administration. Uh, the committees want to have more input in it. We're literally talking about defining a new digital asset, cryptocurrency, which can be a currency. It could be a security. It could be uh, a commodity or even a future. And uh, we haven't done a lot of redefining of assets in a long time. So it's a big deal. Uh, and President Biden's uh, new executive order to finally get uh, feedback from the agencies is going to really start moving us forward. They took a lot of issues uh, from our bills that passed the House already, study bills that uh, were the first cryptocurrency bills to pass in this term. Are you, so it sounds like you think this, this is a sort of natural learning curve. Are, are you frustrated at all by, by the pace of this progress or do you think it makes sense when the stakes are so high uh, for everybody to be as deliberative, I, I guess, as they're being? Well, I certainly would have been happy to have our bills passed into law two or three years ago, but understand that's not the reality. And this is a big deal, right? We're talking about definitions that are going to have to uh, have a whole industry abide by, and it could be the formation of the rules of the road for the whole world, um, because the U.S. is a huge leader in financial services. So let's just say I have a lot of patience, and we're in it for the long haul. Uh, to get this right, we need a balance between innovation and consumer protection. We need to define what each agency has as a jurisdiction, as well as the definitions, and then see where we can promote uh, us being a, a choice forum for cryptocurrency, because we know this, the future of the economy is going to increase more and more uh, the use of cryptocurrency going forward. How would you assess your, your colleagues' level of understanding of, of these issues? It seems like uh, in, in the House, there's been a, a lot of interest, and it's maybe corresponded with uh, a, a higher comfort level with with the technology, uh, especially among Democrats. And then you look at you look at the Senate; uh, they are the Democrats over there seem to be a, a little bit more more skeptical. Well, you know, the House we're younger, just generally. That's just a fact, and. One of the reasons I engaged in both environment and technological issues is being one of the younger members familiar with technological applications. I saw a huge gap in the Congress a few years ago. Look no further than the first Facebook hearings on, on that need. In the Senate, they are more deliberative and many of them are in their 70s and 80s and haven't really familiarized themselves as much to the technology, though that's getting much better. So it's not surprising given the differences in our institutions that we're proposing a lot of bills and then the Senate's kind of reflecting on them. Um, but we do need after agency input uh, to really get towards uh, solutions. Uh, but I think it's healthy to not only have a debate of proponents, but uh, folks who want to make sure that this doesn't go awry. Um, these are people's nest eggs. This is the future of our economy. Uh, at some point, we do need to have final reforms go into law. And so President Biden's executive order does move us along in a big way. Uh, because those study bills passed the House, but they languished in the Senate. So him adopting a lot of that language in there means it's a big step. Hopefully we'll get a response this year. That means we might be able to have a real pen to paper by the end of this year, early next year, uh, to establish the rules of the rule of jurisdiction and definitions. And help us just kind of from a civics perspective here. So the, the executive order that you mentioned from Biden tasks various departments and agencies with going off and, and producing reports on various aspects of uh, blockchain and, and crypto technology. They come back with those reports and, and then what? Congress, is Congress next up to sort of take the, take the ball and start drafting bills or 
Uh, is this something that can happen at the agency level? How do, where, where do we go from there? We would have hearings after that. We do need statutory definitions because the current definitions just don't reflect the reality of digital assets being multiple different things. Uh, certainly agencies are gonna have huge input in it, which is why the executive order is important. And then there's gonna be a tension, right? As there always is between regulatory financial agencies and the Congress. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we do need new laws uh, to protect consumers, to promote innovation, to have rules of the road people can abide by. And right now you have mission creep between different agencies from the SEC, the FTC, the CFTC, control the currency. Uh, so even though they may not want laws, we need to define this and uh, that's where hearings will happen and then eventually committee bills. I serve on the Energy and Commerce Committee, so the CFTC, well rather the FTC and part of the CFTC portion go through our committee and then financial services will play a big role in the SEC portion. And then even the Ag Committee has part of the CFTC per portion of it. So there'll be three major committees really uh, added on this uh, to make sure that we uh, establish the agency uh, definitions and jurisdiction. So clearly the, the SEC is elbowing for, uh, for sort of first chair here in, uh, in overseeing this space. It seems like the industry is much more inclined to see the CFTC as their primary regulator. Uh, do you, and I know you think there should, this should be sort of apportioned based on how things are, how different assets, digital assets are defined. But would you like to see the CFTC in that, in that primary role? I see the CFTC and FTC doing a lot of the work together. There are instances where cryptocurrency can be a security, which would be SEC jurisdiction. For instance, if uh, folks have an issuance of a coin that is going to convert to stock in a company, uh, that would be a perfect example where that would clearly be a security, as opposed to having a currency that you could buy goods with, uh, cryptocurrency that represents commodities, uh, whether it's NFTs or, or other assets, or it could be a future where you're uh, making an investment on, uh, on a prediction for a certain date. So I really think we're going to need all of them. That's why this needs new definitions, because it just doesn't fit in 20th century uh, definitions of financial uh, assets, uh, which is why we need a whole new definition in multiple different agencies uh, working on this. Do you think, so the CFTC is about a sixth the size of the SEC, both in terms of its budget and its staff. Are they appropriately resourced to tackle an asset class that is, as, as we sit here today, $2 trillion and uh, seems to be uh, growing? Well, they would need a ramp up in resources with the additional futures they would be regulating. And the FTC would deal with uh, some of the, uh, the comptroller and consumer protection aspects of it. So they would need additional funding. And then uh, we'd look at what the SEC needs would be. So yes, we would have to recognize these are additional responsibilities and each agency would get to present what they need. And of course, our appropriators would make that decision. Let's talk about security for a second. Uh, you've noted that there are scams and crime that happens in every industry, including traditional finance. Um, but we've seen a kind of profusion of headlines uh, about hacks and, and crypto scams that seem to be uh, picking up in frequency uh, recently. We saw the biggest DeFi hack in history unfold last week, and uh, people are still sort of sorting through what that means and if users are going to get their money back. Um, 
How urgent is this, do you think, for the future of the industry? Are these growing pains or is this uh, sort of an emergency for an industry that is working very hard to establish trust with the users that, that it's got and the users it's trying to attract? Well, up to, if it was up to me, our bills would be passed into law already and we'd be able to define all these things. Uh, in the meantime, it's going to take agencies stepping up. Look, the, the idea with cryptocurrency, obviously, the blockchain is balanced. It's a fixed ledger. It, it, is, uh, it is nearly impossible to affect it after the fact, which is why it was such a revolutionary part of uh, internet transactions um, by making a permanent fixed ledger. Uh, but there are other technologies to be able to undermine it that we saw uh, in other instances. And so first, our concern is to make sure that it is airtight in cybersecurity. Second is to make sure we're protecting consumers from dump and pump scandals and whitewashing and other things that have happened that uh, have, uh, have affected uh, consumers. And third, uh, to address the cyber hacking where cryptocurrency is sometimes used for that. And the one thing I'll say on those things is because it's a permanent record, it really lends itself to us being able to track down funding, like, for instance, in the Colonial Pipeline, where we saw 2.3 million of that recovered um, when uh, Russian hackers were in the 2020, excuse me, the 2016 election were using cryptocurrency. That's how we figured them out to subpoena them. So there are some very secure aspects and traceable aspects to cryptocurrency, but it certainly isn't perfect in every fashion. And so these are reasons why we need hearings. These are reasons why we need new laws and to focus our agencies going forward. Do you have ideas about uh, what Congress uh, or, or the regulators can do to make these networks more secure? Yes, well, we've already passed in uh, the omnibus uh, a key cyber incident reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act that requires when companies are hacked that are in infrastructure that they give notice. I think it should be for financial institutions too. I know a lot of them already have obligation over existing law, but I think some of that is key. We need transparency between the federal government and uh, major infrastructure, whether it's financial or otherwise, so that we know when hacks happen. The, the beauty of cryptocurrency though, is it can be tracked uh, like it was in the colonial pipeline incident, where it was the non-cryptocurrency that we couldn't recoup with the cryptocurrency we were able to claw back. So. Uh, the very fixed nature of it gives it a unique, secure aspect, um, but it's still technology and we're still learning parts of it. So, uh, you know, that's where agencies need to have the rules of the road and then be nimble enough to be able to respond to new situations. Let's talk about use cases for a minute. Um, are there ways that the federal government can use blockchain? Maybe there are ways that this is already happening and uh, we're not aware of them yet or they're not. Uh, on everybody's radar. Is that is that is it happening? Absolutely. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Most people look at the application of blockchain we know of as cryptocurrency, the financial transactions, but it's really an aggregate of information. And so you can utilize information, let's say, to try to resolve a health crisis or let's say to try to resolve climate change. And it's decentralized. So the information can be added to the blockchain from various different sources. Think universities studying climate change across the nation and then utilizing AI, which because we're dealing with so much information in this scenario, uh, we can utilize that to analyze and help government solve complex problems. Uh, just a uh, kind of a primer to that where it wasn't, the information wasn't compiled through the blockchain, but it eventually could, but AI was used 
uh, when we uh, figured out remdesivir, the vir antiviral drug for COVID. That was actually a supercomputer at Department of Energy that narrowed down antivirals to about a dozen or so, uh, one of which turned out to be the one uh, that we use to help combat coronavirus. So you're going to see a combination of AI along with blockchains combining information in a decentralized way to help us solve some of the most complex problems or at least address them uh, in the 21st century. And so there's a lot of potential there for the blockchain generally. It's even be, been used by dissidents in China to, to submit protest messages that then the Chinese government couldn't take down. So there's a lot of other uses of the permanent nature of the blockchain that we've seen before that are going to also have key applications in government and in our society. Got it. But as far as as far as our federal government goes, though, this is this is these are potential uses. This is not something that is starting to uh, to roll out. Just just quite well, yet. I know that I know that universities are starting to add information using blockchain, and private companies are. So uh, this is something that we've submitted into the budget over the last few years. Uh, everything from DoD uh, to VA to start using blockchain. Uh, to help store information. And uh, so we're in the process through getting that in the budget for reporting back. Uh, again, you're seeing a theme. It takes a while for these things to happen, but we did successfully get bu budget language in for them to start incorporating blockchain into certain healthcare, uh, into uh, the VA, uh, into food tracing and other aspects uh, over the past few years. So there is a uh, nation efforts in this already. Well, that's fascinating. Are these are these pilot projects? It's programmatic language in the budget, encouraging them to utilize and determine different ways blockchain can be used. For instance, blockchain can even be used in the technology and uh, secure communications. Uh, I'm not going to go too into it with the DoD, but that's one application right there. Uh, blockchain can be used in food traceability. Uh, to make sure that uh, inspections have happened and to be able to trace things afterwards if there's been uh, uh, food poisoning issues or, or, or uh, other scares with food. So um, this traceability, this aggregating of information uh, and adding it to the blockchain, adding it to this fixed ledger has uh, multiple applications uh, present and future. And uh, the budget's been where we've worked on it mostly. I've gotten programmatic language in over the last two to three years, and we started to get some agency input back on that. Ultimately, we want to create a blockchain center of excellence in the Department of Commerce uh, to look at at least the commercial aspects of it with the potential of it uh, also uh, coordinating with other federal agencies. Uh, so that's a bill we've had, and, and there's also a possibility that that can come to fruition from President Biden's executive order. So as far as more retail, uh, applications or, or use cases go, the one that gets talked about a lot, and I've heard you've mentioned this, uh, remittances. You also represent Orlando, and I've heard you talk about uh, the potential here for the tourism industry to use this to book uh, international travel with much lower fees. Uh, is, that, is that something that's, that's happening now? Are, are travel agents in Orlando with uh, foreign clients uh, interacting with transacting in, in crypto or is that is that something that you've talked to them about um, or something that you think is is something uh, that might be a, a use for the future 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Tori. So the main reason I've gotten involved in this space, in addition to the need for members to step up to help out with technology, is because I do believe it's the future of the economy and it's going to help small businesses. So a travel agent in Orlando booking a hotel or uh, perhaps even uh, conducting transactions about timeshares, uh, a key aspect, remittances, uh, another key one, because you're eliminating the transaction costs of going between currencies. I know it's being used much more widely in and around the district in remittances, especially in unstable areas like Venezuela, where there's a, there's a real hyperinflation and, and uh, not a stable government there. We're seeing it used in donations in Ukraine, generally speaking, to help them through that. And we're starting to see small businesses use cryptocurrency in Orlando in the tourism space. I wouldn't say it's a standard procedure just yet, uh, but this is all the reason why we have to look three to five steps ahead. If the United States is going to continue to remain a global leader in financial services, we need to reg regulate and innovate in this space. And two areas that I know I'm excited about for uh, our theme park capital of the world, Orlando, is uh, in tourism and with such a diverse area. So many folks, first generation in the United States, them helping their families, especially in countries that maybe have unstable currency. Uh, so the latter being more used right now, but the former. I think we're going to see more and more of over the years as people get more comfortable. Congressman Soto, we are out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tori. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.